0: Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television.
1: Welcome to our 16th annual Writers' Symposium by the Sea at Point Loma Nazarene University. I'm Dean Nelson on the journalism faculty at the university and with us tonight is Mary Carr, one of the most celebrated poets in America, won pretty much all of the national awards. I can't name them all. But her poetry has appeared in The New Yorker, in The Atlantic, most poetry anthologies. But she's also known for her memoirs, The Liar's Club, Cherry, and Lit. Um, Liar's Club is credited with sort of kickstarting the whole memoir genre in the, uh, in the mid-'90s. She's also a professor of literature at Syracuse University. Mary Carr, welcome to our Writers' Symposium.
0: Thank you. Thank you, guys. Thank you, guys.
1: Now, you're a, you're a poet. You're celebrated as one. You write poetry. You've, you've, you've had... Being any... a
0: celebrated poet, Dean, is like being a celebrated plumber. I mean, it's... it doesn't <laughs> Could I really... finish? I'm sorry.
1: No, go ahead. Go ahead. It's no, your no, show. No, no, you go <laughs> no. on.
0: No, no uh, you clearly no, the po- have a thing, a point. No, no, to no, the, the
1: plumber thing. I'm sure you've got a shtick, so go ahead.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, that was it.
1: That was it, yeah. <laughs> Seriously? Bring it. All right, all right. But even though you've been a celebrated uh, poet and you've won all these awards, it seems like you're best known for your memoirs. That's right. And, um, you know, Liar's Club in 95, Cherry in 2000, Lit in 2009, you see yourself as a poet, but it's your prose that gets the attention. Is that a troubling thing to you, or are you just happy? It's (laughs) heartbreaking. Yeah.
0: It's heartbreaking. I mean, it sort of is. I mean... You know, if you have an art, you love the way I love poetry. Um, I'm just amazed they paid me to do anything, which is what the memoirs were all about for me. They were... I'm supposed to have these noble reasons for doing them, and I really do them for money. Um, I do. <laughs> if they didn't pay me, I wouldn't do them. Because the Samuel Johnson
1: line comes to mind.
0: Yeah, no man but a blockhead ever wrote for any cause but money, as Samuel Johnson said, right. Um... Uh, I'm just amazed that I'm making a living doing anything. I'm amazed I wasn't knocked up in high school or something. I, I mean, I'm just amazed that. Well, you had dinner tonight with a friend of mine, uh, a former drug dealer. I moved to California with. Emphasis
1: on former. Former. Right.
0: Um, uh, my friend Dooney, my best friend since I was 15, and you heard a little bit about our hometown, and it was not a. It was a. It's a rough little town, rough little town. Not, we weren't poor. We didn't think of ourselves as poor. It was a very violent, violent place. Very high suicide rate.
1: So, um, so you had stories to tell, clearly.
0: I think that was, I was bequeathed stories, I think. Yeah. And you talked a lot about that today. I thought the way you talked about it was really smart about um, how really it all comes down to storytelling, and that's sort of at the foundation. Chris was just talking about that and songwriting, that really you've got to tell a Story in in uh, three verses, and and uh, as a journalist and a nonfiction writer, you've always managed
1: to do to use narrative to your advantage. In in Liars Club, I was I was really struck by um, th- what what you said in there about running some of these stories by people in your family or checking public records and. Uh, oh, I didn't
0: check any public records. You didn't. Mm-hmm. Okay.
1: All right but the, but you but you ran those stories by them to make sure that they were accurate I,
0: I, that? Did, I did, but i i didn 't show anybody anything, and young writers I tell you this now don 't show anybody anything you 're working on, so it was only after the book was written that I would run them by people so um I would warn people in advance, I would say to my mother, remember that little psychotic episode you had, like 1960, when you tried to stab me and my sister with a butcher knife? I kind of want to write about that. <laughs> so if you're going to have a problem, then you should speak up now.
1: Mm-hmm. What if she would have, though? What if she would have said, oh, please don't? That would ruin everything.
0: Well, you shouldn't have tried to stab me
1: with a butcher knife. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's
0: what you get.
1: You, you don't want me to write about you. You should have lived better. <laughs> exactly. Right?
0: That's right, as Toby Wolf's mother was, said, I, you know, if I'd known both my boys were gonna write memoirs, I would have lived differently.
1: <laughs> so, but memory is kind of a tricky thing, though. It
0: is, it's a, it's a, it's a little slithery eel, it is.
1: What we How do you know we're... you're writing what really happened?
0: Well, one doesn't, um, I think, I think I do have a really good memory, I'm told I have a good memory. Uh, I have a good memory for language and a good memory for detail. Also, my family is a family of storytellers, so I think things get codified in narrative. You know, there are stories. You know, the story about you know, you know, my mother saying she shot at us, and you know, you know, is that where you? Isn't that where you shot at, Daddy? My mother saying, No, that's where I shot at Larry. Over there is where I shot at your daddy, and. Um, that's just, we've told that story so many times that it's just been codified in language. Um, and my father was a world-class kind of barroom gambler, storyteller-type uh, pool shark guy. And um, so for me, memoir is an act of memory. It's mm-hmm. not an act of history. I don't, I don't uh, feel a need to represent everybody else's point of view. Um, so I actually kind of avoid doing research in, in the beginning. But I do try to give people a heads up. And what if my mother had said no? I mean, you know, I told my mother I was going to hitchhike to Mexico when I was 15, and she thought it was a good idea. My, my mother's never said no to anything, <laughs> including, by the way, the seven people she married. So <laughs> um, my mother's just not a big no-sayer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, honey, get it off your chest. I think was what she said.
1: Well, I, but even, even, though, even though memory might be tricky, I, I just know that memoir kind of gets criticized every now and then because sometimes, I'm not saying you do this, but sometimes memoir writers have written what works as opposed to what really happened. Well, and let me give you an example. James hear, Fry.
0: Yeah. Well,
1: James Fry is a classic, but I, I, I went to hear uh, David Sedaris Uh, do a reading before his last book came out, and he had a pencil with him, and he would say funny things, and people would laugh or not, and he would make marks in the margin. So during the question and answer time, somebody said, what are you writing? And he said, I'm writing you know, the level of laughter or lack of laughter after some of these stories. And the person said, what happens if they don't laugh? And he said, I change it. And they said, well, but I, I thought this, this was a memoir. And he said, yeah, it's, it's a... No, it's but a- it's a
0: memoir, but you want to cut out anything that's boring. I mean, you know, there are all kinds of things that I wrote that were very important to me. I don't go through and write uh, what's important to me. It would be a completely different book. I'm trying to write a story that will give an experience to a reader. So there are all kinds of things that happened to me that were much more important to me this, than what's in any of those books, but they wouldn't... Cohere with that particular narrative. So you are making a work of art. It's not just that you vomit back stuff that happened to you onto the page and then, you know, that's your memoir and everybody's, you know, no, you have to go through and where stuff is boring and the reader's going like, it's like they're on drugs, you cut those parts out. Cutting I'm kind of out. shocked. I'm disappointed that David wouldn't know what was funny or not.
1: C- cutting stuff out is one thing. Changing the story. To oh, it make didn't it sound funnier. like he
0: was changing the story. It sounds like he was cutting out the stuff. No, that didn't he work. was
1: changing the story because they, somebody said, "What if?" Well, then that's what a if line. It's not funny? That's, a said, li-
0: that's a lying bastard. <laughs> Let's call him up. <laughs> I bet I could get him on the phone.
1: Because, because the reason I'm pressing this point is that you have said, I want to be hamstrung by the objective truth.
0: No, no. I am not hamstrung by the subjective truth. I am hamstrung by event. I said that fiction writers have an idea. I'm working on a TV script right now. You have an idea, and you manufacture the events that demonstrate that idea. For a memoirist, you have events and you don't know what the truth of those events are. So you manufacture meaning from those events.
1: But you don't manufacture the events.
0: No. That was the sad thing for me about James Fry exactly. making up, you know, do you guys remember? You're probably too young even to remember. Million A million little pieces. A million little lies. Um, <laughs> he has my money, too, and I want it. Oprah. Um, he, uh no, I mean, you know, he didn't go to prison. He didn't have a fistfight with cops. He he had a parking thing where he parked his car up on the curb. And then for having drunk beer when he was in college, he spent three hours in an Ohio police station.
1: Which turned into like 30 days or something like that. No, it turned into
0: a, a pri- He fought with cops in a prison yeah. sentence and all this stuff. So that's just like horse dookie. I mean, that's not hard to figure out. Is this a lie or not? Do <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? I mean... That kind of lie doesn't bother me because I don't make up things that don't happen. No, no one ever, you know, no one would say to my, I, I mean, would I write that my mother shot at people if she didn't? I mean, would that does that, the sad thing for me about the Fry thing was that he thought that his own level of suffering, and I said this today, I think the most privileged, comfortable person in this auditorium from the best family has already suffered the torments of the damned. I don't think any of us get off this planet without suffering enormously, and the only way—and one of the chief ways we suffer is by loving people who are incredibly limited by the fact that they're human beings, <laughs> and they're going to disappoint us and break our hearts, and you're going to be there wishing your mom or dad or your parents, no matter how great their marriage was, at some point trembled in its foundation, and it was terrifying. And uh, you fell in love with somebody who didn't fall in love with you back or whatever. We are all heartbroken. It's the human condition.
1: Do you remember your definition of a dysfunctional family?
0: Yeah, you know, any family with more than one person. (laughs) (laughs) I could get along just fine if those other people who claim they share DNA with me would stay out of my way. I'd have a perfectly happy Thanksgiving by myself.
1: (laughs) You Um, know, I... I, th- I think I read somewhere that Liars Club started out as a novel.
0: I tried to write as a novel, but a novel is very, you know, for, I, again, I, I'm friends with novelists, and I think Don DeLillo, I think, is a great novelist, and I think DeLillo, I once said to him, why don't you write a memoir? Because something he had told me as an anecdote about his family, I read in Underworld, and I said, why don't you write a memoir? And he was like, ugh, I mean, he looked like a slug, you thrown salt on and um, and my writing a novel for me was an excuse to correct the events so the thing I was going to say about Fry is the sad thing was he didn't think his suffering from being an alcoholic and trying to get sober, he didn't think that whatever his level of suffering was, was sufficient Um, and you know, you don't have to go to Auschwitz to suffer. You don't have to. plenty of people. Anybody who went to a concentration camp, anybody who grew up during a war, uh, suffered far more than I could have suffered as a child. Um, so it's the the myth about memoir is that whoever has the worst butt-whip and wins. And um, that's not true. Whoever writes the best wins. <laughs> Except for James Front. <laughs>
1: You know, it's interesting that, that that's how you think about it because a couple of weeks ago, the New York Times Book Review had advice for those wanting to write a memoir. Oh,
0: I read that. It was really funny.
1: All right, so, so he says, a good memoir is not a regurgitation of ordinariness or ordeal, not a dart thrown desperately at a trendy topic, but a shared discovery. And he goes on to say, maybe that's a good rule of thumb if you didn't feel like you were discovering something as you wrote your memoir, don't publish it. Absolutely. Instead, hit the delete key and then go congratulate yourself for having lived a perfectly good, undistinguished life. Absolutely. There's no shame in that.
0: Absolutely. You know, I actually, with Lit, my last book, I actually broke the delete key. When you go into my apartment in New York, there's a Computer on my desk, and the delete key has like been just like broken because I deleted so I threw away you, two thousand pages. Ex-
1: exactly. You, you. This what came out as lit was like the third version oh, or like more. Oh, like fifth version. Fifth. So, what was so bad about the other ones?
0: Boring. It's you know, it's sort of like we were talking in this class today, and um, he's right. The truth has to ambush you. It's not that you don't know the events that happened. Um. I tell a story about writing Cherry, which begins with my saying goodbye to my father, who's this kind of uh, Clark Gable kind of jug-eared, Indian, half-Indian, feathers, not dots, farm work, uh, oil worker. <laughs> and um, he. I remember it as being so sad. I remember it being really sad. Dooney was coming to get me with all the, we had all the marijuana and the surfboard and everything, it's all figured out. And um, my father and I had been so close when I was little. We used to hunt and fish and and, um, he taught me how to shoot pool and he used to give me money. One reason I swear is he used to give me money to swear. And the worst words I would say, the more money he would give me. Because he thought it was hilarious. You know, for me to say when I was feeding the pigs at his sister's house, come on, you sons of bitches. You know, like he he just thought that was hilarious. This amused your father? Oh, yeah, for a six-year-old to say that. It
1: it cracked me up and my kids did the same. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing got me like that. Nothing got you
0: like that. Oh, God. God help us. But my father, and I, because I had this sense, and if I, in all every therapist I ever went to, I said, you know, my father d- did drink himself to death, drank himself off a bar stool, was bedridden for five years, like something shaken out of a shell, and uh, broke my heart. And but he was, we were very close, and I always had this sense that he left me. So the way I write a memoir is, I'm like, I remember this scene very vividly. I remember going in the house. I remember saying to Daddy. You know, we're leaving, and he's like, you're not going anywhere. I'm like, no, Daddy, we're going. The surfboards are on the truck. I'm leaving. I'm going out of the house. I'm moving to California. Nope, you don't need to go to California. I'm just like, okay, Daddy, bye. You know, like, I'm leaving. Mm-hmm. And I remembered crying and crying and crying, thinking about that, uh, because in some ways, I, you know, we never saw each other. And so I said, okay, well, you had a sense Daddy left you. When did you first have that sense that Daddy left and I tried to come up with times. You know, my mother left. My mother would say, "I'm going to the grocery store and be gone a week," so that was standard. But um, <laughs> but Daddy did kind of the same thing every day. He got up, he went to work. He never missed a day of work. He drank like a fish, but he showed up. And I realized I left him. He never left me. I remember having jobs, and he would come bring me little supper plates covered over in foil and. He wanted me to stay there and marry a pipe fitter and you know gut coons and skin snakes and fry catfish, and I wanted to live the great bohemian life and go out and have adventures, and talk, meet the smart boys who read French or something, and um, so that's what I mean. I mean the events of that scene didn't sh- didn't change. But as I tried to pick and scratch at what was true about it, I realized that my whole take on my relationship with him was inaccurate. Hmm. That it was founded on something I'd had to kind of tell myself to get through the fact that I left, and then he drank himself to death.
1: Hmm.
0: Um, do you know what I mean?
1: Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm also thinking about uh, something that you said. Tobias Wolff told you when when you were writing a memoir. He said. Uh, Take no care For your dignity
0: Right I mean I have very little dignity going in Um, So I had an advantage
1: (laughs) Yeah but But I mean you you took his advice right
0: I did and when I was writing the novel Like the character who was me was like Beautiful and noble and wise And did volunteer work at the nursing home And was like No it was just all these things that I was like Shooting at people with BB guns You know I was like Somebody who was just sort of not me.
1: So, so I'm, I'm just wondering, how hard is that to, uh, to write about your dad, to write about your mom, to write about your own assault? You're being molested, you're being raped. Can I tell things?
0: you, that's not as bad. You know what's worse than that? Tell me. What's worse is the times you were Hopeful. What's hard to write about was really hard to write about in lead, It was hard to write about baby Jesus, because uh, I knew everybody would think I was nuts uh, for being a Christian. Um, and you know, I cried all the way to the bank. Yeah. But um,
1: <laughs> that was your was, cross to bear. It was
0: hard. That was my cross to bear. It was hard for me to write about being in love with my young husband, and being you know, 26, 27, 28 years old and living in Cambridge and lying awake and reading each other Samuel Johnson's biography and reading poetry and and how close we were and, and how much we tried to make a love and a life together. So writing that tender stuff, when you really believed that so you would have a really stupid idea that you believed in, hmm. um, that was so much more painful. You know, the things that are hard for me to remember are never the things that were done to me. They're always the things I did.
1: Hmm. So I, don't,
0: I don't th- sit up at night and think I was raped, I was raped, I was raped. I sit up and think, you know, you made out with your boyfriend's best friend in college. <laughs> Why? <laughs> you know, like, who would do that? You know, that's the kind of thing that I think about. Not. Huh.
1: You know, speaking of your uh, now ex-husband, you offered... Uh, for him to read Lit. I did.
0: I did. And I wrote him in advance and sort of, you know, he had the chance to squawk about it, but I also knew he wouldn't either. I mean, he's a poet and an autobiographical poet, so he, you know, people in glass houses, you know, he's written mm-hmm. about me. Um,
1: but you gave him the chance to either read it or you'd change I said, his name, I right? I said,
0: would you rather have a pseudonym and have me dis- disguise some aspects of your life? Um, or would you rather vet the manuscript, read the manuscript when it was done? And he said, um, I'd rather not read it. And, um, I mean, I wrote him a letter, and I said, you know, I think it's clear who the asshole is (laughs) in this deal. Um, And I said, uh, you know, I would be uncomfortable if you were writing about me. I I don't have any score to settle with you, and... It's mostly, again, when the person who's the villain in this book is me. It's not anybody else. So, um, and aspects of my own character. So, it's funny. I mean, he, he just wrote me. He's a wasp. You know, they never say anything. <laughs> so, how do you know how he feels? I didn't right. know how he felt when I was sleeping with him. <laughs> you know? Um, But I suspect he was okay with it. I did did send it to our couples therapist. We did see a couples therapist in Cambridge. And I sent it to her and said, does this seem like a fair representation of the marriage? Have I... Because I rewrote that once. I, I wrote it, and I was kind of worse than I was. It wasn't that I made things up, but I just put in more things for I was always the jerk. And then I sort of made him worse and it was hard to get the balance right where you felt like this is an accurate portrait of what happened.
1: What, what else was wrong with the first few versions of, of lit? I mean, at least a thousand pages you said you tossed. It, you know, besides the fact that it was boring on the one hand boring or maybe some of this. Boring is bad,
0: though. I mean, people don't buy boring at one, you know.
1: So, so what did you do?
0: Writing about... Uh, my son's father was hard. Uh, writing about being in the mental Marriott was hard. Writing about being suicidal. Uh, writing about uh, finding God and becoming a Catholic and um, about prayer—how big prayer and God and all of that—how much that means to me. That's really, you know, I without that stuff, I'm really I'm in the inferno. If y'all see me drinking again and, like, not talking about Jesus, just run over me with a car.
1: Okay. Good to know. Good to know. You know, the Daily Beast said this about uh, about your book Lit. It said it could have been named Drink, Study, Marry, Parent, Crack Up, Sober Up, Split Up, Pray. Huh. Do you see Julia Roberts playing you in the... (laughs) Right.
0: Eat, pray, make money. Um, so funny. I never have any sense about anything I've written after I've written it. People always say, who do you want to play me? I'm like, well, Greta Garbo, of course, my twin. Um,
1: Your twin. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, that's, that's funny. I
0: don't think of myself as a character in a movie, you know. I, even strange as it seems, even though I've written all these books, I don't, I don't think of myself as a character, so... Just somebody really, you know, gorgeous. I mean, who knows? You know, who would play you, Dean?
1: <clears throat> I, I like to think I could handle, hand, handle my own character. You, can, you. you, yeah. can, you would
0: play you. Yeah,
1: you I'd be the Oliver Stone <laughs> character. I just keep showing up in my own films. Yeah, Let, Let's go back to the New York Times thing about discovering something when you're writing memoir. What did you discover in, in any of the three... I mean, was well, I mean, it something that... all
0: three books were so... The discoveries were so different. Um, Cherry, I think I discovered how innocent I really was, despite the fact I was raped, you know, twice, despite whatever bad things happened to me, um, my wonderful world of my adventures with pharmaceuticals. Um, despite all, everything I did to corrupt myself... Really, that I was a kind of a sweet little girl in some ways, I was. I I reconnected with a kind of innocence that I almost hadn't permitted myself to have. Uh, So there was that. Um, With lit... Yeah, I think rediscovering that love for my now ex-husband. I mean, we've been very happily divorced for 20 years. We're great divorced people. I mean he used to stay and he lives in New Haven and I lived then in Syracuse and he would come stay at our house you know every other weekend he would come stay to stay with our son and I would leave the house so he could be there alone with him and eventually I just stayed there with him and his girlfriend uh, later my Um, (laughs) wife-in-law it was really kind of a nightmare for him he would get up in the morning we'd be making muffins and like talking and he's like he just hated it he really did (laughs) We liked each other so much.
1: That would be a little awkward. I would it was think. a nightmare for him. Yeah.
0: My son thought it was hilarious, though. He liked it. It was kind of a big love thing, right? Well, I, I think... Uh, not really, not a...
1: I think it was Salon.com uh, that said your book, The Liars Club, was the best book about growing up in America ever written. Good for me. Yeah
0: it. I'm good.
1: Better than you thought, apparently. Better than
0: I thought. Why don't I read those reviews
1: more? I really should. Well, you know, is, is that what Liars Club is about? Is it about just growing up in America? Sure.
0: I haven't read it since I did the audio book. I don't even know what's in that book. I mean, I have the... Va- the truth is, you write these books, and you're so invested in them, and by, you send them to your editor when you're done... And you feel like you've ripped your skin off with a potato peeler and rolled it up in a little tube and sent it to somebody, and you're waiting for them. I mean, you're just dismantled and uh, terrified and miserable and and, uh, really immature in in, uh, your insecurity. And by the time the book comes out, it's nine months later, and you're just sort of like, who cares? You've moved on. It really is... By that time I'm writing something else mm-hmm. I'm doing something else I'm not even thinking about the book and then you go on this like 18 month you know pig at the state fair show <laughs> you know where you go all over, the, all over the planet with your little ribbon around your neck and um people are talking about the book and I'm like did I put that in that book? Jeez. did I? um so it's not that I don't know what's in the book, but it, it, they do, I really don't, like I've never read a book of mine ever after it's out of my hands. I've never like looked at it and thought, well, that's really good, you know, or, or yeah. you know, it, it just...
1: Well, it, some of the things that, that stand out in my mind that I actually I have read a couple of times uh, through just because I thought the detail was, was so phenomenal, you know, the, the opening few pages of Liars Club where th- there's that scene of after the fire, maybe I need to remind you of what's in it. No, but, I do. But the, the, that, I kn-
0: that I know, because that's what they call a frozen memory. Do you wh-
1: know? No, what, what does that mean? Because you've got, you've got exactly the pattern... That's on your nightgown you 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 know what color the sheriff's shirt is
0: you know an apocalypse now you know we're like Charlie Sheen is mm-hmm. like you know and going Saigon you know and like and sees the ceiling fan it's like the helicopter yeah. that's the way that scene was for me I mean I I was there are certain kinds of memory and I've, I've actually read a lot about this it's has some I've spoken uh, I spoke a uh, Two weeks ago at the School of Psychiatry at Grand Rounds at New York Hospital, I told a friend of mine, yeah, I'm going to go lecture at the School of Psychiatry. He said, bring your toothbrush. <laughs> um, uh, but there Do you want are, me to
1: help you know where you were going with that? No, I remember. No, okay. There are
0: certain kinds of memory when you're in a very agitated state, mm-hmm. uh, your cortisol level and your... Adrenal glands secrete all this stuff. You're, all these hormones are secreted. And you're, very, you're like a, an animal hunting something on the prairie. You know, you're in this kind of hypervigilant state. And those memories are actually stored at a different part of your brain, kind of closer to the hypothalamus. And they're often these frozen memories that like soldiers who come back from war, mm-hmm. they'll often have memories where they remember the same scene like over and over and over again. So that scene and many scenes like that, um, like when doctors take my cortisol level, they always say, did you just run a marathon or something? Hmm. Because I have such high levels of stress hormone, even now. So it's Like
1: right now? Like during this interview right now?
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not anxious, I don't feel nervous, but I mean, I have to like, you know, eat vegetables and exercise and meditate for 40 minutes a day, you know, I have to do all this stuff to keep myself from mowing you all down with a submachine gun.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting, it's interesting because I, I just assumed it's because you kept a really good journal. Oh, no, I didn't keep any journals.
0: Are you kidding? My mother didn't even... My mother would say, let's skip Christmas this year because it was too hard. Do you think she kept my little... Treasured my little journals when I was living in the 1,800 places I lived on my itinerant youth? I mean, I didn't... Nobody kept anything in my house. My mother threw away my daddy's ashes. Threw them away. She's like, oh, I didn't want those. I was like, well, what about us, (laughs) mother? (laughs) Oh, what would you do with those? Well... People do things with these things, mother. They actually. Oh, that's ridiculous.
1: I, I, I love how you describe your mother checking in on you and your sister as if you were lizards in a terrarium. <laughs>
0: in a terrarium, like you tap the side of the terrarium, like yep, they're still moving. You know, it's alive. And so they're alive. They, they've got a pulse. I'm ahead. You know, it's a miracle.
1: So you didn't keep journals.
0: Uh, I would start a journal, but I was a very disorganized child. I would then like lose it after like. Yeah. Two days or something.
1: You, I was you,
0: a bad student, too. You, you,
1: wrote, a, you wrote a poem. Um, I think I... Yeah, I have it right here. One of your early poems as a child was I Am Sad, The End, by Mary Carr. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, that's the way I felt. Um, And to some extent, everything I've written since then is just sort of an explication of that. (laughs) So, yeah, I was a sad little human unit. I
1: was. But you also also wrote somewhere that you predicted you would be both a poet and and write autobiography.
0: Yeah, in the Paris Review, they... uh, They actually reproduced a page... They do those memoirs in Paris Review with writers, and they actually reproduced a page from the only journal I kept, or my mother kept, uh, 1965, so I was 10 years old. And it says, When I grow up, I will write one half poetry and one half autobiography. The same page, it says... "Um, When I grow up... I'm... (laughs) I'm not very successful as a little girl, it says. When I grow up, I will probably be a mess.
1: You wrote that at 10 I years old? I wrote
0: that at 10 years old. Imagine the foresight.
1: <laughs> well, go back, to your, go back to the point, though, about the, the, the I am sad, the end. Is, is, this, is that idea of I'll probably be a mess uh, not successful as a little girl? I mean, you're still sort of explicating that, too, aren't you?
0: Except I don't feel that way anymore. I don't feel sad. I mean, I you know I have a friend who's dying, waiting for a heart transplant. You know, I was sad when my priest died. I'm sad when I you know see the floods and people drowning. And you know, you know I get sad in New York every day. You know, there's a guy who was sleeping in my doorway for a while, and he had a he wore a kind of a garbage bag around his neck like a cape. And I would get up in the morning and I would bring him... I'd go to get some coffee and I'd bring him, I'd say, what do you want? You want a bagel? You want some coffee? And he'd give me like an order. <laughs> and then... Uh, it was really great though. At one point he said, uh, I'd like a bagel with cream cheese toasted. <laughs> um, I said, you want, to, you want some coffee? You want something to drink? He says, I'd, I'd like some coffee with milk, three sugars and some orange juice. I said, Okay. <laughs> So I go down to the coffee shop, I get all this, and I dutifully come back. But he had a great dignity of arranging this cape when I would step yeah. over him in the morning. and say, good morning. You know, he's, he's just kind of looking, just kind of arrange himself this kind of imperious way. And uh, sometimes I would want to cry looking at him when the weather was bad. And so I came back, and he's like, I thought it was going to be a large orange juice. <laughs> I said, you know what they say, beggars can't be choosers. <laughs> Jesus, But I mean, you know, sometimes I, I am a tender-hearted person, and I, I think I do see suffering. I, am, I think I am attuned to su- You know, my students suffer terribly. You know, terrible things happen to everybody. Um, but I feel very, my, personally, I feel very lucky. Um, just very lucky. I mean, you were talking, this friend of all of our friends are dead. Everybody, everybody in my carpool in high school is dead. You know, two suicides. Uh, everybody went to prison. Um, you know, I have this big apartment in New York. I'm engaged to this great kind of mogul business guy, and um, my son's doing really well and generates income. I mean, who knew? I just wanted to be continent and eat with a fork. <laughs> you know, that was my hope he would be HIV negative by the time he got out of high school and I was ahead. You know, and he's making money, making films. It's astonishing to me. Good for him. That's what I think. The,
1: I, I, I'm going to go back to your childhood for a minute, not to make you sad, but 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 to uh, but to talk about poetry and the influence that that poetry had on oh, you. It just it kept me alive. Your mom read poetry to you. My you read, read poetry, poetry to your mom.
0: I read poetry to my mom. We all, even my father, who I never written, I never saw read anything but a sports score in his life. Um, We were. uh, We read poems out loud. We memorized poems. We said poems to each other. Even my sister, who even then was a kind of like, she wanted to be a Republican and join the country club, you know, and marry somebody rich, you know, like she was going to make a lot of money, which she did. Um. She she would just get misty eyed. It was a very powerful medium for us. She's still one of the great readers. Not my mother's dead, so hardly reads anymore. <laughs> yeah, and
1: she never calls.
0: Never calls. Yeah.
1: But, but you, wrote, you wrote that poets were your first priests and poetry itself your first altar.
0: I think it was, I was saying today in a class, for me it's Eucharistic. It is, right. you, you, take, you take somebody else's suffering, their passion, into your body, and you're changed by it. You're transformed by it. You're made more tender, or more human, or you're more alive to your fellow human beings. The, I can I could literally read a poem and and lift my head from the page and look out, and my heart would just be softer. And uh, so it's yeah. I think it kept me alive for a long time.
1: And yet your junior high principal said that, uh, <laughs> what, poets were like prostitutes.
0: No, he said, if you continue, I was doing really badly in algebra, and he called me in and, and gave me this lecture where he said, well, you, I said, you need to learn about mathematics. I said, I don't want to know anything about mathematics. I want to be a poet. I knew this guy was an idiot when I was 12. <laughs> and I said, um, he said, uh, well, but you'll need, you'll need to be able to make multiply fractions to do recipes, you know, when your husband's family comes over and to...
1: He really knew how to reach you, didn't really he? Really,
0: to, to sew your dresses. And, um, and I said, um, yeah, I don't think, I'm not worried about that. I said, I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a poet. And he said, if you continue... This is an actual sentence. I remember the sentence because I said it to my mother. My mother, like, went nuts and, like, called the school. If you continue down this path of wanting to be a poet, you will wind up no more than a common prostitute. (laughs) (laughs) I was was like 12 years old, you know. I weighed like 60 pounds, you know. It's just like, a, what an astonishing sentence for a grown man to say to a child. I just can't even imagine the mentality of the man. When I look back on that place I grew up, I, it's, well, you met Dooney tonight. I wasn't, I was not making that stuff up. That's hard to believe. That was a high school principal.
1: Yeah, yeah, you would think that... Uh,
0: we'd go a little a word higher encu- on the...
1: A word of encouragement, perhaps. We'd
0: go into the chordate phylum to get one of those, right? <laughs> Get a primate or something.
1: You also said one time that nothing can maim a poet's practice like joy. Like joy. Does that mean that happy people are just screwed if they want to write?
0: I think it's a, I think it's a challenge, especially I think for Christian writers. I talked to some of the students um, in Carl's class about that today. That... Um, I think there's not an idiom for joy. I mean, I'm trying to write about joy now. There's a great poem, a tra- uh, Sufi poet, Kabir, translated by Robert Bly, and, and it's, it's a poem that's both dark, it has some of that whiff of joy in it, but it's ultimately very dark. I'm going to say it. It's called um, The Radiance. It's translated by Robert Bly, and it goes, I talk to my inner lover... I love that. I talk to my inner lover and say, why such rush? We sense that there is some spirit that loves birds and animals and the ants. I love that, and the ants. Perhaps it's the same spirit that gave a radiance to you in your mother's womb. Is it logical you'd be walking around entirely orphaned now? The truth is, you turned away yourself, and you chose to go into the dark alone. And that is why everything you do has some weird failure in it. Isn't that big? But the first part of that has all this joy in it, right? And then he just pulls the rug out from under you at the end. <laughs> Sneaky.
1: Actually, actually, I think that's a little bit how you write. You know, you, you talk uh, in some of your books that, that you when you, you wouldn't get on you wouldn't get into a full-on fist fight with somebody But if somebody made you mad You could ambush them later Yeah, I, was, I and had I, a long memory Yeah, but I think that's how you write, too I mean, it, it, very similar to how you just uh, recited that poem Is that you start out one way And then, bang, it's like somebody get You just hit somebody with, on the side of the head with a shovel I just didn't know I was that good You are that good I feel
0: so much better about it
1: <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm just here to affirm <laughs> <laughs> but, but this, uh, but but this, this awful, the sense of, the sense of joy. So, uh, all right, let me let me put it this way: Does art have to come from pain?
0: Uh, does virtue have to come from suffering? Do we have to go to God only when we're in pain? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's why they say there are no atheists in foxholes, right? The, the um you know, I was just talking to a woman who's had a disabled child and uh, today. And I said, he must be remarkable to have been through all this. He's, he's had all these uh, treatments and stuff. And I said, why does it have to be suffering that makes us uh, so yearn for that connection with something else? I said, but he must be a really remarkable kid. It's funny, and that's that's one of the things where they were telling me I had liver cancer. My my I have a spiritual one of my former spiritual directors in in another town uh, called me up and says, you know, well so they're saying you have liver cancer. And I was like, somehow I just don't feel like I do. I mean I know that I'm really sick, but I don't feel like I just don't feel that sick. It just seems like I would feel worse. And um I said, I really have a sense of Christ in this. I don't know how to tell you. And she said, oh, you mean that you don't have liver cancer? I said, no, that if I have liver cancer, it's going to be okay. That there's going to be some huge spiritual gift in it that I can't even imagine what it is. Hmm. And so it's sort of like, you know, you look at the there's this surge of great art coming from Poland, great poetry that comes from Poland after they've been invaded first by the Nazis, you know, and then by the commies, and uh, just squeezed every way they can be squeezed and murdered every way they can be murdered from the left and the right, you know, I mean, from the right and the left, I mean, would make you insane, right? And there's this great surge of, after World War II of Polish poetry, and it's like all that suffering, um I wish it did weren't, I I wish it weren't so.
1: This this is part of the kind of the subtext in lit it seemed to me is that you just finally had to come to terms with some of these things in in your own life. I mean, when you talk about surrender and letting go, you really resisted these terms, you know, oh, people please. saying to you you I was ha- like
0: surrender. Yeah, surrender. <laughs> yeah. I will. I was like one of those, you know, <laughs> we were talking about. I was like one of those Japanese guys, after World War II, they've stuck on some island, you know, doesn't know the war's over. You know, I'm just still, you know, shooting at coconuts or something from behind a sand dune somewhere. Um, so, yeah, I was, I will never surrender, Yankee dogs. <laughs> you know?
1: But, but surrender to what? Why, why, why was that so hard?
0: Well, I mean, I think one of the things we do when we do the Ignatian exercises, which I talked about this morning, is one of the first things you do is you talk about your image of God. What is your sense of God? Where did you get that? And what you very quickly discover, if you do them in a group, because I, we had instruction in a group, and then you meet one-on-one with the spiritual director, um, is that you realize that everybody projects onto God whoever their parents were. So, like, I don't have a very good feeling about the Virgin Mary, because I don't have a very good feeling about my mother. I mean, my mother was not... Actually, I actually have a very good feeling about my mother, but she wasn't very mothering. Mm-hmm. You know, I loved her, but she wasn't very mothering. Um, my mind just went blank.
1: That's all right. Well, we were just talking about projecting you, you know, your, your, your own <laughs> stuff onto God, and and I'm just I'm just thinking you kept resisting
0: oh, surrendering I, I both
1: su- both yourself and your manuscript lit. Yeah. What, what were you holding on to?
0: Well, I. I I didn't want to... You know, I had developed a readership. And I feel... Somebody said, do you write for yourself or your readers? I feel very responsible to my readers. I feel like I've been writing since I was five years old. I've been publishing since I was 20. You know, that's a long time. And I have... Over time, I've got people who read my books and buy my books or X number of people who would buy my books. And I don't want to disappoint them. I don't want to bore anybody. I don't want anybody to spend any money that's like, I really don't. I wouldn't want to put my name on a book that was not so good. Or at least not as good as I could make it.
1: But in your own personal life, you kept, you didn't want, the, the, the phrase that kept coming to you was, was let go. You're, the, whether it was Alcoholics Anonymous people, Anything or, I ever
0: let go, I've had claw marks on it. You know, yeah. it's like the cat in the cartoons. Um, because I think my image of God was of somebody who, um, because my parents were neglectful, they weren't, uh, you know, controlling. They weren't, you know, scolding and punitive. They just like didn't pay that much attention. So I had a sense of a God who was like a sort of, you know, up there, you know, smoking cigars and every now and then hurling a lightning bolt down, <laughs> you know, to just smack you awake. So, I mean, you know, you, you realize that you have these ideas about God, even if I didn't grow up with an idea of God, that I somehow have this innate sense of something based on a way I was... So, would you want to surrender to that? Some kind of, like, the mean bully in high school who, like, you know, tripped you when you had your cafeteria tray?
1: Yeah, I remember you wrote that uh, you grew up in sort of a godless household, and yet you still believed God was angry with you.
0: Absolutely. Exactly. I knew that I, I knew that I was in trouble. I knew yeah. I was in trouble.
1: You know, I'm, I'm curious about uh, how you wrote Lit also just physically. You wrote that lying down?
0: I wrote, wrote most of the book lying down.
1: How does that work?
0: Well, exactly. It works better than standing up, surprisingly <laughs> enough. I had with Cherry, I had a repetitive... I wrote before then, I wrote everything Longhand before 2000. And I developed a repetitive stress injury like jewelers and surgeons get from going hmm. doing like little fine motions with their mm-hmm. fingers. you get this thing in your shoulder and um, for a while i couldn 't even hold a book up. I had to lie on my back and hold in bed to read um, and hold books up it was uh, It was really painful. acupunctures fixed it in like three weeks but um, uh, I had to start writing and I was writing so many hours a day and once I kind of knew what I was writing I really wanted to get it over with because they're standing there like going come on, come on, come on and basically I just run up all this debt and um, I had to get the money to pay all my bills and um, had to turn in the manuscript to get them to give me the money. It's nasty when they have your money. (laughs) And you expect you to do something for it? It's ridiculous. But
1: I'm just trying to picture this. So you're, you're.
0: I lie in bed. I get up in the morning. I pop open a diet coke. Michael would get up. My fiance would get up and go to work. He's like, you know, like with his briefcase in his. Hi ho, hi ho. Exactly, happy, good natured thing. This jacket over his shoulder, and you know, i Is it a beautiful day? And I'm like, oh God. and I would lie in bed, I would open my laptop, I would get on my knees and pray. I you always, always pray before you write? Always pray before I write. And usually during, several times. I need a lot of help with this yeah. stuff. And, um, and I would lie down and write uh, for like two or three hours and then I would go downstairs and I would pretend that the day had started all over. And I would make myself a cup of tea and I would write standing up at the dining room table. I have a, a high bar kind of dining room table. I would write there standing up for a while. And then I would go sit on the sofa and right there for a while, and then I always wound up back in bed. So Michael would leave the house at (laughs) seven o'clock in the morning, and then have meetings after dinners and come straggling in at like nine thirty at night, you know. And I've got the curry guy has been there. I've got like boxes of curry all over the house, or pizza or something. And I'm lying in bed, like basically in the same position I've been in when he left.
1: Other than boxes of food, boxes of food all
0: around. So yeah, I I did a lot of it lying down.
1: You, one of the reasons that you said you were afraid to write was, was that you didn't want to be exposed as a fraud. Yeah. Or sent back to the minor leagues.
0: I did. I was very afraid. Is that still,
1: is that still an issue?
0: I was very afraid at the end of this book, I called two friends of mine, I called Don DeLillo and I called Bob Haas, Robert Haas, who's a poet who, was my teacher, now teaches at Berkeley. And I called DeLillo. That's sort of like the way the president presses the red button, you know, and then the nuclear warheads. When you call DeLillo and Haas, you're bringing in the big guns. So I called DeLillo and I said, you know, New York and the West Coast. you got East Coast, West Coast. So I called DeLillo and I say, I'm ri- I think I'm writing a bad book. And he said, who does it? I said, that's true. And I said... I'm afraid you won't like me if I write a bad book. Hmm. I'm afraid you won't have lunch with me still. He's like, I don't care what kind of book you like. If you write it, it doesn't make any difference to me. We all write bad books. So that made me feel better mm-hmm. about DeLillo. So then I call Bob Haas, and this is like Mr. Berkeley, you know, blah da And he says, that doesn't worry me a bit. I said, I, I was crying by the time I called Bob. It's like three days later. I'm like, I think I'm writing a really bad book. He's like, that doesn't worry about me a bit. I said, what is this, some Buddhist Zen California thing—it doesn't worry you a bit. I mean, what am I supposed to take comfort in that? And he's like, "Well, what are you afraid of losing? Are you afraid of losing the prestige of your position?" I said, "Absolutely." Uh, People, you know, I'm supposed to say no, but of course I am. I like to be the judge. Asked to be on committees, and I like to help young writers. I like the fact that I can help my students and introduce them to people, and I like founding, giving money to magazines. And yeah, I like being able to do what I do. And um, I said, but that's not what really bothers me. What bothers me is that I won't be part of a conversation with other writers I admire.
1: You'll get kicked out of the club.
0: I'll get kicked out of the club. And he said, what writer on the planet do you want to meet whom you haven't met? I said, well, Garcia Marquez but he'll be dead soon anyway, and I don't speak Spanish. So, um, and he's not coming to America anytime, and he won't invite me to Mexico City, so um, not really anybody alive. Um, A couple of basketball players I'd like to meet. No, That's a joke. I'm friends with Phil Jackson. I met a couple of basketball players I like. Um, And I said, he said, if you write a bad book, it'll be a bad book with some really good sentences in it. (laughs) I said, you know, that's right. It's just not such a bad thing to write a bad book. It's pretty predictable. And then there was this strange freedom, and it was writing about my religious conversion and about all that, the last, the end of the book, which is just, it was so hard to write about. I was telling them Richard Ford had, when I got baptized sent me a postcard. He's a Kind of very cynical, dark uh, fiction writer. Ford writes me a letter. It says, "Dear Carr, not you on the Pope's team. Say it ain't so." <laughs> Ford. <laughs> you know, I was like, "Oh, you tender-hearted thing." You know, congratulating me on my new baptism. Um, so for me, it's sort of like the Beckett line of "Fail better." or uh, that That anything I write is always limited in its success it's what does like fail better mean well you don't it 's not that you 're not going to fail when you write a book. like have I written as well as shakespeare that 's my goal i 'm falling a little short guys i 'm mm-hmm. um, not in competition in the marketplace i 'm in the competition on the, in my mind in my own sick, deranged mind which is where I live anyway and and with history with the great writers who dwarf me so I'm like that kid with a little league slugger you know who gets to go into Yankee Stadium and it's just you know I'm just lucky that I get to carry the bat you know I'm lucky that I get to you know stand on the field it feel it does feel like there's a great line in, in a memoir by G H Hardy great mathematician He's talking about his argument for being a mathematician. He said, for most of my life, I've taught students who aren't even as good a mathematician as I am. He was then teaching at Cambridge. And he said, he's then a famous number theorist. And he said, and I'm a mediocre mathematician at best. So what's the argument for my life? It's because by doing mathematics, I've had an experience that's different in degree only and not in kind. From the experience of the great mathematicians and the great artists, and anybody who's ever had a large dream, and uh, so that's how I feel about it. I feel humbled. Uh, I feel like my enterprise is small and you know humble, but it's my own little, I'm my own little insect, you know, dealing with my own little ant hill here. So,
1: impressive ant hill. In our. Uh in our final moment here, we have some aspiring writers in the audience. A lot of people watching this will be wanting to be better writers. Give us your uh, Mary Carr's advice for young writers.
0: Well, rewrite. If somebody says this doesn't work, believe them. Uh, don't think, oh, but I'm thinking, you know, it's just like when T.S. Eliot or when Joyce did it. No, just shut up. Just rewrite it. Um and read more read above your station read people better than you Uh, don't read me, don't read Dave Eggers you know, don't, you know shoot higher than the marketplace you know, fail better Hmm. than we have I think,
1: so Mary Carr, thank you very much for being with us
0: Dean Nelson, thank you that's great, thank you guys thank you